I'm your host, Christopher Calloway, and welcome to Creator Talks, the show where I interview writers and artists working in comic books and other mediums. One of the great action shows of the 1970s was The Six Million Dollar Man, and it still endures today. Dynamite Entertainment has the license of the property. They've released a few miniseries already regarding The Six Million Dollar Man, and now they're ready to release another one, Six Million Dollar Man. It is coming out in March, and it's written by Christopher Hastings with art by David Hahn. David is my guest on today's show, and we're going to talk about the book and the 1970s. David worked on Batman 66 meets the man from Uncle and Batman 66 meets Wonder Woman. Was David a big fan of the Batman 66 television series? We're going to find out. We are also going to find out what other projects David is working on, including an upcoming Kickstarter and a webcomic. We do talk about all things 70s, and in the Kicking Back with the Creators section, I asked David about what 1970s technology he misses, and his answer surprised me and brought back some memories, and what was the best movie made in the 1970s, in his opinion. And also, back when he worked at Helioscope Studios, what former guest on this show popped in for a visit? This interview is brought to you by The Comic Book Shop at 1855 Marsh Road in Wilmington, Delaware, where comics are for everyone. Just be nice. So let's take a trip back to the 1970s and discuss The Six Million Dollar Man and more with my guest, David Hahn, here now on Creator Talks. David, welcome to Creator Talks. Thank you, Christopher. I want to clarify something. Do you live in Big Sky Country now? Are you in Montana or are you in Portland? I am in Montana. I'm in the western end of Montana, the banana belt of the state. So a lot of mountains, a lot of green. How did you get there by way of New Mexico? That's quite a climate change. Yes. Well, I grew up in New Mexico in Albuquerque. And then in 99, my then wife and I decided we wanted to move to Portland. We both had reasons for wanting to move there. And mine was particularly because there was a huge comic book scene there that I wanted to be a part of because I was just trying to get my career started at that point. So that was uh, the impetus for our move to Portland. And then uh, about around 2011, 2012, she and I split up. And then I ended up moving out to Montana a couple of years ago with my new partner because I wanted to get out of the city. Love Portland, but I wanted to try something different and live in the country. Now, are you a country person that likes to go hiking? stuff like that? I've never was. I am now, but I wasn't a big outdoor person. No, I liked all my amenities. <laughs> well, yeah. But now that I'm here, it's like, <laughs> but I love it. I go to the parks. I go hiking. We go out to the mountains. Uh, Shenandoah is one I've mentioned on the podcast before. Mm. We stay at a place. People say, oh, do you camp out? I'm like, no, <laughs> no <laughs> way. Even before kids, no, <laughs> not doing yeah. that. <laughs> Well, among your credits, working in comics, Batman 66 meets The Man from Uncle, and Batman 66 meets Wonder Woman, which I've read both those series, and they bring Batman together with other characters and heroes from the 60s that he wasn't connected with in the TV series, with the exception of two, the Green Hornet and Kato. Were you a fan of the Adam West Batman? No, not really. As I must say, as a kid, I liked it. But that was the only Batman that was around, other than the Super Friends animated type of things in the 70s, which I also loved. 
I mean, I liked Batman. I liked the Adam West stuff, but it was even as a child, I could tell it didn't feel superhero-y to me. It felt silly, which was obviously kind of the, the intent of the show. I liked the more serious Batman as far as uh, movies and TV. When the um, Tim Burton version came out, that was exactly what I wanted. Even as a kid, I was just not into the campiness of that version of Batman. So, so no, I wasn't the big fan that most people are. Yeah, when I watched it as a kid in reruns, I want to clarify that, uh, <laughs> I didn't really dig it that much because it was to me it was silly. And it wasn't until I got older that I'm like, oh, I get it. It's a parody. It's supposed to be silly. And now I like it more, actually, as an adult. But the Batman animated series, you must have liked that. Oh, yeah. When the Batman animated series came out, when was that? Like 92, 93? 92, early? yeah. Yes. Oh, immediately. <clears throat> I remember my, my first impression was that I was hoping that the, the, the model designs would be more realistic and not as stylized, but that after watching the first couple episodes when I saw it and got used to it, I realized, oh, no, this is exactly what it needs to be. That's exactly how I felt when I saw the designs. I'm like, oh, that's too stylized. I, w I was hoping for something a little grittier. Yeah. But man, what a series. Yeah, absolutely. Does that influence your art style? Uh, yes, it does. At that time when that show came out, I wasn't working in comics yet, but I was trying to break in. I was sending samples to editors and such. And my um, mentor was uh, comic artist David Williams. I don't know if he's, how many comics he's doing, but he's still in the industry drawing superheroes. And I remember we would put on the Batman Adventures. I'd go to his house. He had a home studio. And we'd work. I'd do my samples. He'd do his paid work. And I remember him just pointing out all the things about what it was that made that particular cartoon so good. Besides the fact that it was Batman. But just the noir approach to it. The stylistic choices. All kinds of stuff. He kind of opened my eyes to a lot of that stuff. Are there other artists' work you also studied besides working with him? Oh, yeah. That would be um, Alex Toth. Most comic artists, especially older people, look at Alex Toth. I tend to lean toward really liking the, the artists who are more designy, I guess is the best way to put it. I like, like Alex Toth, Mike Mignola, um, Kevin Nolan, people whose black and white work that really stands up. Those are all artists whose work is always so strong when it comes to the spotting of black spaces and that kind of thing that I've always liked. I've always liked that designy aspect, that designy look. And there's going to be other artists that I'm going to think of later on that I'd think, oh, how could I not have mentioned that person? Well, you just shout them out. That's okay. Just okay. randomly while we're talking. <laughs> <laughs> the middle of a different sentence. Right. Yeah. <laughs> is there a particular genre that you like to work in best if you're doing your own work? Of course, you work for hire, great, you know, take the job, do it. But if you have a choice and you're doing something on your own, are there certain genre that you like to work in? Like, for example, there's superhero stuff, there's crime, there's horror, comedy. Which do you gravitate towards? It's funny. I like telling just about any kind of story. But as far as doing the artwork, one thing that I tend to like to lean toward would be something would be post-apocalyptic themes. My approach would be decay and things that are broken down that don't have to be drawn perfectly. For the longest time, when I started drawing, everything I drew was as crisp as it could be. I love drawing things that everyone hated. I love drawing the inside of the supermarkets. I love drawing clean, sterile type of environments where I could put a lot of crisp lines down. And I love doing that. And then over the years, I wanted to kind of get away from that. And so I personally like things that are going to be more organic or broken down or not as clean. Off the top of my head, that's the first thing that, that, that comes to mind. Other than that, I like doing the crime stuff. That's my first major job was drawing for a crime vampire comic, Bite Club for Vertigo. That's how I kind of 
got my foot in the door with DC. And I liked doing that. And I wanted to get into the superheroes um, after that. And I kind of found myself where I'd either be drawing really family-friendly stuff or very adult material for, you know, mature reader kind of stuff and nothing in between. Um, but as far as the genres I like working in, I'd, I'd have to say post-apocalyptic science fiction or crime. I guess $6 million man is somewhere in between the family friendly and the more adult stuff. Cause this is going to appeal to a lot of people and it's not superhero per se, a little more science fictiony. Did you ever watch the show? Oh yeah. When it originally aired, I was a kid when that show was out. I had the toy, the, the act, the, the doll, I should say a couple of them. And when I was approached to do the $6 million man project, I kind of think it also had something to do with having done the Batman 66 stuff because that is, it's, TV related, and it's of an era that I was actually sentient during, so I can have uh, certain reference points that I would have firsthand. But yeah, I was a, I, mean, I loved Six Million Dollar Man when I was a kid. So did all my friends, so did everybody, yeah. Did you have a favorite episode? I would have to say everyone picks the Bigfoot one. Mm -hmm. I remember being particularly uh, stressed out. Uh, the episode with the um, the probe, I think it was supposed to go to Venus, not Mars, and it malfunctioned and landed on Earth. And I remember Steve Austin having to fight this unstoppable probe. And I remember just the relentlessness of this rolling tank-like probe that it couldn't be stopped. And it was just a machine. Really stressed me out as a kid. I, I don't know if that's a favorite episode, but that's one that really I remember sticks out a lot. Well, I'm glad you grew up in the 70s and know a lot of the pop culture references and are perfect for working on this book. I was reading some uh, old 70s comics the other day, because I really like those, because that's when I started reading comics. And it's funny now, because I'm reading these Spider-Man books, and there's references to politicians and TV shows and music that I don't think people would get today if they just yeah. picked it up. I was like, oh, man, I, I like this. I'm laughing at it, but my wife would not know what the heck I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, it's references to Jimmy Carter mm -hmm. and Peanuts that Oh, yeah, Jimmy Carter is a president, but they wouldn't you know, necessarily make that association of how much his peanuts or his brother Billy and Billy Beer and that kind of stuff was in the zeitgeist at the time. Are you a fan of 70s pop culture? Do you collect things from it? Besides back in the day, you had action figures, we'll call them. Uh, but the, did you keep any of those? You still have some of those? And are you, do you collect any of that stuff now? For the longest time, well into adulthood, I held on to my Shogun Warrior toys and my Micronauts and my Star Wars figures. But eventually sold those on eBay over time. But I, I was very happy that I held on to so many of those toys for as long as I did, just out of sentimental value. I don't reach back to try to collect something from my past, really. I do collect the new Star Wars action figures. That feels like a different thing. I mean, it's, it's not the same as, you know, when you're a kid and you collect stuff and get excited and play with it. Now it's just more because I appreciate the quality more these days. But there's nothing from the 70s that I'm still actively collecting. Well, with the $6 million man that you're going to be doing the art on, what should we know about the writer that you're working with, Christopher Hastings? This is the first time I have worked with him. And I got to say, he has the, the approach we're taking on this story, or actually the approach that he's taken, because he's the writer, is that this is a very humorous type of story. And I kind of, I appreciate that because you can't take the $6 million man too seriously. The $6 million man comic has been done before, and that, I think, is the approach most people would want to take. Well, let's, what if it was real? What if $6 million man was, was real? How would we do this? And, you know, like the same way that many art um, writers have taken the approach to Batman and other characters to make him as real as possible, um, our editor, Nate Cosby, said he wanted the approach to feel more like it was 
one of the Justice League International comics from the 90s or late 80s to have that kind of humorous tone. Lots of goofy facial expressions, little gags here and there, but an overall regular adventure story, action story. And so I thought that was going to be a fun approach, was to have the tone and vibe of those Justice League books from the late 80s and early 90s. That's something I like about this, that it's not a perfect technology, that it's clunky. That's one of the things I liked about Iron Man when I used to read him back in the 70s. And I go back and read the old ones from the 60s, is that even though he was called Invincible, he wasn't Mm -hmm. so invincible. There would be malfunctions in the armor. He had problems with his heart. I don't like it when the technology is just perfect. You know, I like to see them struggle with trying to get things to work. We're going to see about the depreciation of the $6 million man as things go wrong. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. And where I am um, drawing the story, that things are definitely going wrong. I love the fact that I'm drawing this analog technology. I mean, I'm obviously making it up, but that we're not having any kind of blue hologram interface stuff pop out of him that he can look at and, you know, none of that kind of stuff. It's all very rooted in the 70s because that's when this takes place. And what else are you doing to capture the look of the era? Well, at this point in the story, we're in an isolated region. I have not had the opportunity to yet draw something that takes place where I could put certain fashion and pop culture things that would clearly identify it as the 1970s, unfortunately, because that's the stuff I get most excited about with me to put the cars and the bubble lettering and all that kind of stuff in. And we're not at this point in the story, any of that kind of locale that would offer that opportunity. Best I could do is the hairstyles. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Now, this is going to take place in Japan? Part of it's going yes. to take place? Okay. So how are you preparing or how have you prepared to capture the look and feel of that culture? Um, I've done plenty of uh, Google searches. I have plenty of Japanese reference books, but they're all modern, you know, past 10, 15 years. So I've actually had to do Google searches for Japan, 1970s style that kind of stuff. And it's been very helpful. And it's one of those situations where then I get overloaded with, oh, I kind of like this haircut for this character. Oh, but I want to give her this one. Oh, but this one looks good. And oh, this one really screams 1970s. And oh, this is, you know, we also got to remember this is Japan 1970s. There's a lot to choose from. So it's kind of sometimes hard to nail certain things down, but that's a lot of Google image searches has been what I've used, like most, I think. <laughs> you can't travel. To, I mean, it'd be nice to, but it's, <laughs> it, that's an expensive trip. It's expensive there and it's an expensive flight. That'd be a long one too. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> According to Hollywood Reporter, Warner Brothers is trying to get a film off the ground with Mark Wahlberg about the Six Million Dollar Man, but I don't think they have a scriptwriter yet. Maybe you guys can like really make this work and make it a big thing, and you might get a scriptwriting job. <laughs> Help push this over the top. Yeah, push yeah. over the top. Well, you know, it would be an interesting take to see it done more of a comedy versus a straight up high tech action type movie. You're saying that you think it it would be more of a comedy kind of thing. I think it would work the way you guys are approaching it to put a little more humor into it and make it clunky versus I guess the natural thing would be to say, hey, let's have this high tech guy with all these bionics and special effects. But I would like your approach better on film where it's a little clunkier. Make it a period piece. Make it funny. Oh, yeah. I'd love to see that. And I think that would probably be the most logical way that they would do it these days, given that that's kind of been the approach to a lot of these things is to make it self-referential to a degree it almost seems like it'd be like a will ferrell kind of project or uh, <laughs> yeah. you remember that like the starsky and hutch mm-hmm. movie ben stiller like like that kind of thing where it's definitely giving a giant nod to itself as far as it's taking place in the 70s it's of its era and it's kind of poked fun of a little bit so let's make it kind of silly issue one's coming out in march through dynamite comics 
Yes. You're also working on a web series. Is that Aztec Empire? Oh, yes. Aztec Empire. Yes. The story of the uh, conquest of the uh, Aztecs by the Spanish conquistadors. Yeah, that is an ongoing thing that is intended to be a printed graphic novel. And we're releasing it online to give everyone a taste of what this is. But our ultimate goal is to make that as a bound edition book. Paul Guinan, my partner who is putting that whole thing together, he's the captain. Um, he's the one who does the homework, the research. This is his dream book. And part of um, what we'd like to do with that project is have it be, to a level, a definitive telling of that story. Because the story of the fall of the Aztecs has so many elements in it that seem unbelievable. If it was made into a movie, you'd say, oh, no, that's too convenient. That's too contrived. How could this have happened? It wouldn't seem real, even though everything is accurate and all these weird events did happen. And so we want this to be something that could almost be used as a teaching tool that we want to be so accurate that it could be something educational. His bottom line is that he wants everything to be accurate, even if it doesn't seem believable. I was very excited when I saw that project because it's a work of basically nonfiction, like you were saying, being very accurate. So that appeals to me right away. Even if it's a fiction story that draws a lot on the history and gets everything right, this is a nonfiction story. And Paul Guinan, well, I read Boilerplate. I got a copy right here. So mm. I was like, oh, cool, because I have all the history behind it. Where boilerplate, this robot fits into various, it's kind of like Forrest Gump robot. You know, he appears yes, in various yeah. points in history, but all that history is accurate, except for his appearance, of course. But it is so cool. So I was like, oh, awesome. Because I know this is going to be historically accurate. How are you approaching working on that differently as far as your art style? He is doing a lot of the heavy lifting as far as providing the reference material showing me okay this is the aztec nobility when they put on their smocks they would tie it to the right on certain days and maybe to the left on other days and sometimes it doesn't matter and sometimes it does little details like that that could really be overwhelming and there to a degree there is stuff that we have to fudge just for the sake of it can't it's not going to be 100 percent perfect as far as the art goes because i'm just not capable of that nor do i you know the time and resources <laughs> we want to get this out there for people to read um sooner rather than later he provides me with the references that i need and any and any question i have would this helmet be appropriate for this period and he'd say yes and then maybe a few months later come back and say no we got to change it and that actually did happen with us we had the wrong helmets and somebody on social media pointed out that the conquistadors did not have this particular style of helmet we were using at that time and so Paul decided um, correctly, well, then we need to go back and change it because we want this to be as accurate as possible. So we had to go back and do a few patches to some of these helmets, something that most people wouldn't even know the difference. But because there are people that would know the difference and we want this to be taken seriously, those are the kind of details we have to pay attention to. Now, when did you start this series? Paul approached me um, with this idea where he knew that he, I was the guy that he wanted to do this in 2001. Maybe it was 2000 is when he first pitched it to me. And it has been just percolating in the background in his mind for all this time until about three years ago, maybe four, when he said, all right, let's start moving on this. Like, and he says, I, can, I got a budget because he didn't expect me to work for free. And his time is you know, worth something as well, of course. And so, yeah, 2000, about 2000, 2001 is when he pitched the idea to me. 
And he did such a good job on it. It was just something we always just kind of knocked around and talked about. Yeah, one day we'll get to work on that. And now it's come. And so when do you think that'll be combined into a graphic novel? And how will you go about getting that published? Well, we're on page, let me look here, 56. And it's going to be about, if I remember correctly, four to 500 pages, I believe. Ooh, wow. He's the one that is doing the shopping and uh, the footwork on this, on, on the marketing end and everything. So uh, we're not quite sure yet how it's going to end up. Ideally, giant, big coffee table, heavy hardback edition with the big Aztec sun disc in the middle, you know, embossed on the cover. <laughs> That's what we'd like. And where can people find this to read and how can they help support it? Bigredhair.com and also Aztec Empire Facebook page. And the Aztec Empire Facebook page is the best way to keep on top of it. He posts the pages weekly, colored pages, lettered, good to go. He'll occasionally post some process shots of behind-the-scenes stuff that are part of a Patreon. And those also get posted on Facebook sometimes, too. But he also has a Patreon for extra additional material because he really supplies a lot of fun fact background kind of stuff pertaining to what's going on, you know, in the scenes in the story and that kind of thing. Read a comic or an educational comic and there'd be like a footnote that'll then go off and do a bet you didn't know fun fact about something in that part of the story or some item that they're using in the story. That kind of thing. Now, in addition to this and Six Million Dollar Man, what else are you working on? It seems like I'm always working on stuff that is a non-disclosure agreement stuff. I do um, some work for a Northrop Grumman company doing uh, custom things for them that fall right into comic book kind of stuff. As far as stuff that people would be able to see, Six Million Dollar Man is what's on my plate right now. Carl Kiesel and I are going to be potentially launching a Kickstarter this spring for a project we have called Impossible Jones. We co-own that he's writing and I'm drawing. And we have Tony Avignon Colors. And it is a, uh, best way to put it, it is a plastic man kind of story. Our hero is really a villain. And her name is um, Impossible Jones. And she's kind of a plastic man character. We call it Grin and Gritty. It's a con story about this this villain that's mistaken for a hero. And she finds the upsides of pretending to be a hero while she does her capers. And that, that's kind of the, the nut of it. And we're going to hopefully launch that as a graphic novel based on our, on our Kickstarter funding coming up. Now, you do a lot of freelance work. So oh, yeah. That's difficult because I've talked to a lot of freelancers. I know there's huge benefits to having more control over your schedule, your work-life balance. But there's also there's kind of the unknown getting by you know, week to week, month to month, and expenses. So what keeps you up at night? It's a stressful job to begin with. And our economic times as it is right now in our country, makes it even more stressful. What keeps me up at night is keeping the ball rolling as far as I know I can do the work and I know I can do it professionally. But what keeps me up at night is wondering when certain uh, uh, avenues are going to dry up and not necessarily for me personally. I mean, not because of me, but you know, whenever I see something about comic book sales dropping or this, that, or the other thing, you know, and it's been doom and gloom forever. You know, that's always been, and somehow we've always managed, but that's making sure that I have enough work for the next couple quarters is always the, the stressful thing. Clearly I'm not alone on that as far as freelance life goes. Keeping the pipeline full is a challenge. <laughs> yeah. So what do you love so much about storytelling and art? What makes you stick with it? As far as comic book storytelling, 
when I'm writing my own stuff or when I'm working on something someone else has written, but there's good leeway in there, like when I work with Carl or with Christopher Hastings on The Six Million Dollar Man, there's room for me to put certain beats in that I enjoy doing. That's what I like the most as far as comic book storytelling. I mean, drawing something that looks cool, the immediate gratification, but adding something or creating my own beat is, is something that I really like. It's getting an extra panel in there that's a close-up of something or a reaction shot or something that either expands or compacts the moment a little bit. It's that kind of manipulation is what I love the most about it. And you're also a founder of, co-founder of Heliscope Studios. Oh, yes. Well, when I um, moved to Portland in 99, because I wanted to meet other fellow comic book people, some whom I have already had a relationship with that lived in Albuquerque and others, you know, that I had yet to meet. And there are so many of us there that would meet at a coffee shop or hang out or go to each other's houses. And a couple of us, Pete Woods in particular, one day I remember at a comic book show, I said, why don't we get a studio started? Why don't we do something? Why don't we actually find a place that we can rent, see if we can get other people in on it? I believe uh, Mike Miller was there too. I think it was the three of us that originally had this conversation. I mean, certainly other people had had studios in, Port in the Portland area that had come and gone. But as far as uh, what was now Helioscope was then Mercury Studio when we first got it going with about eight or 10 of us. And then we, we rented a space in downtown Portland and it worked out and it grew. And we eventually moved to a, a larger location and it became um, Periscope Studio because we, we've changed the name to Periscope Studio, kind of rebranded ourselves a little bit. And then uh, Helioscope after that, because apparently there was some issue with the name Periscope. So we had to change it. And we came up and just when you get a bunch of people deciding a studio name, that is one of the most grueling things ever, because no matter what, the name that you decide on is going to be the most medium, mediocre name that nobody's happy with. And that's how it always goes. Do you miss being in the studio? Uh, yes and no. As a matter of fact, I mean, I've moved on from that atmosphere. I mean, I really craved it and I craved having other people to bounce things off of. And this was before social media and such. I do miss the particular people that I worked with. I miss being able to have certain conversations that would have occasionally come up. Shaolin Monk versus Caveman was always a conversation that we would have, especially when someone new came in the studio who would win in a fight, a Shaolin Monk or a Caveman. <laughs> That's all the information you get. And we would ask our interns that when we interview them or on their first day, poor things. And it'd stress them out because they didn't know what the right answer was. And of course, whatever answer they picked would be wrong because half of us would say Shaolin Monk and the other half of us would say Caveman would win. And everyone has their own reasons. But that, th those kind of conversations, that kind of silliness is something that I do miss with those people. They're very, very dear people at Helioscope, and I, I do miss them. Outside of social media to share ideas back and forth, how do you get a chance to connect with the creators? Do you get a chance to go to conventions throughout the year? Do you get invited to them, you know, book signings or anything? Oh, it's funny. It's feast or famine with that, Christopher. When I, when I was part of the studio in Portland where I could actually go in and see everybody and had all the interaction with all my peers – that's when I would go to the conventions the most. We'd all, as a group, go to, you know, go to conventions, have a big area, block of tables, that kind of thing. We still do. Then I'd just be around more of my same people. And now, in my situation, I don't see my studio people every day. And it is just, with my personal financial situation, it is not economical for me to travel to do shows, unless I am a guest who who has a plane ticket is paid for and, you know, per diem, that kind of stuff. For me to travel to a convention to promote 
my projects, it's too much of, ri- of a risk for me for the cost of a table to not make that money back. I, and I do appreciate there's, you know, all there's the intangibles you get of going to a convention will usually entice me enough to still go. Even sometimes if I think I'm going to take a hit on this and I can't afford to really to miss the time at home working, but I go because I know that you, you do meet people. You do make connections. There are people that are glad to see you and sign their books and, and that kind of thing. I do hear that from creators, that it's important to be seen and connect and promote. But at the same time, they're like, and if I get invited, I'd be happy to go <laughs> because mm-hmm. of the cost. Yeah. When you add up all the charges that come along with that, besides the plane, the taxi to the hotel and then the food and the socializing drinks and everything. Yeah. And I always yeah. buy stuff on their books. And so it, it yeah. really racks up. Yeah. It's hard especially when you're trying to make a living doing the art. Yeah, I was almost better off. It's funny, before I broke into comics, before I, I was able to be a guest at you know San Diego Comic-Con and stuff like that, or have an artist alley table, I should say, is that me and my friends would go, and it'd be like the vacation. It's like, okay, we're going to go to Comic-Con. I'm going to take my samples. I'm going to go meet editors, do everything I can. But I'm doing it knowing that I'm paying for all this. You know, We're going to do this, but we're also going to go to the beach. We're also going to buy stuff at the convention. We're going to do things. You know, So I'm already planning on spending money to go do this thing. As opposed to, as a professional, when I go, I feel, well, I'm here. I need to make money. I feel more obligated to not do anything fun. I need to be at my table to sell my books and sign books and do sketch commissions and that kind of stuff. The outlay of cash, because I have a means to make some of it back, if not all of it back, or if you have a good show, you know, make it completely profitable, uh, then that becomes the focus. It's okay, I got to make enough today to pay for the hotel room. Whereas before, it didn't matter. It's like, well, paying for the hotel room anyway, let's go have fun. Yeah, when I go, I want to meet with as many people as I can, make as many connections as I can, interview as many people as I can. So I'm there Mm -hmm. to have fun, but I also feel... Even if I'm paying my own way, I have an obligation to get that done. So I've got to make it worthwhile. I'm slightly stressed. So I try to pace myself now so I can enjoy it too and not try to accomplish too much. I would just be like exhausted when I got home. Yeah. (laughs) Myself out. Yeah. Pacing yourself. When I go to conventions, especially for something crazy like San Diego, I would always, at least at the end of the day, I could say, okay, it's five o'clock. The floor is shutting down for Artist Alley. Now I can go hang out with my peers or go to, you know, this company dinner or something like that. And that downtime, you know, something that we all really like. That's how I'd pace myself. Eight to 10 hours during the day and then hours at night off, relaxing, hanging out. Absolutely. And that, sir, is the perfect segue to my questions. Kicking back with the creator, what do you like to do for rest and relaxation? Like most artists, comic book artists, I like to draw. When I'm, when I'm not working drawing, I like to draw, usually just fiddling around in a sketchbook. I like shooting because we live in a rural area. We can go to target practice. And I like video games. Quasi well-rounded <laughs> leisure life. David, thinking back to any birthday in your life, which one stands out for you? That is your favorite birthday, or maybe not even the favorite, but it just stands out in your memory. The birthday that stands out in my memory, and it was certainly not my favorite, was the birthday where I was a kid, or young teenager. I kind of was forced by my dad to learn how to play golf because he just felt that, you know, it's something you should learn to do. And I mean, he had all the right reasons, but it was certainly no fun. And I remember one Christmas, my dad had ordered me some kind of fancy putter for my golf club set. And it didn't arrive on time. And so I got a note. It was my major Christmas present saying 
that it's on its way. You know, I open the you know, envelope up and say, your big Christmas present is putter and it's on its way. And, you know, that was my Christmas present. And it took so long for that thing to come. My birthday's in May that by the time it arrived, it was closer to my birthday. So my parents just kind of stashed it away and then wrapped it and gave it to me for my birthday. And so that stands out because I felt triply gypped. I mean, I don't want to sound terribly entitled, but it was a Christmas present that I didn't get that was now, hey, it's your birthday. So it's your birthday present. And it was something that I didn't particularly even want and associate with going golfing as more of a chore than a fun activity. Although we did have fun times. That stands out. And you did give me the caveat that it doesn't have to be favorite, but it's memorable. (laughs) I can understand why it wasn't even a gift that you wanted because kids are like, I want this for Christmas. And that should be the big present. It's like, I got this for you, son, a yeah. golf club putter. You're like, ah, oh, yay. But then to have to wait. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, I, and I, then get it for your birthday. And I you know, tried to you know, look as happy as I could. Yeah, you understand their intent. Yes. And I had a lot of great birthdays and a lot of great Christmases. So I'm not complaining. I'm just saying that's the one that leaps to mind. <laughs> <laughs> now, when you think back to middle school, in your bedroom, what posters or pictures did you have? Posters and pictures on my wall in middle school that definitely would have been, I had the uh, Star Wars Empire Strikes Back four set Burger King posters. I remember those. I had all four of those very cool painted Burger King Star Wars posters. Um, I certainly would have had uh, National Geographic. I seem to remember a Peregrine Falcon. It might have been World Wildlife Federation poster. And like a, you know, King Tut Golden um sarcophagus poster. I remember that. But that'd be the kind of stuff I'd have. Star Wars and National Geographic-ish kind of posters. And model airplanes hanging from the ceiling. And I think I also had a model of Captain Hook's pirate ship. And instead of having it on the shelf, I thought, this thing is supposed to fly. So I hung it from my ceiling. And I thought it was so clever having that ship with its sails hanging from my ceiling. I had a closet in my room where I had a bunch of magazines stashed in there. They were clean. I... <laughs> <laughs> no, honestly, no, seriously. I just realized once I said that. <laughs> no, but what I was th- <laughs> what I was thinking about was all the dynamite magazines that I had. And I remember one of them distinctly had Steve Austin on it. It was a $6 million man cover. Yeah, I used to have a bunch of those. I don't have any more. But uh, yeah, I kept all my toys in the closet and magazines and stuff like that. Uh, we must have been close to the same age because I remember, yeah, I remember Dynamite. Yeah. And I remember like after Dynamite, the next level was a magazine called Bananas. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, oh, that's for the older kids. I'm going to stick with Dynamite. I don't know if I'm <laughs> old enough to, to be allowed to subscribe to Bananas just yet. Now, this is a hypothetical. You're stuck on a desert island. You're allowed to have one book for pleasure. What book is it? Oh, God, it'd have to be a book on how to build a boat to get off a desert island. Oh, but this um, is for pleasure. <laughs> this is for Okay. Oh, you're right. That'd be more of a survival thing. I would have to go with something that would be difficult and voluminous, long. Um, let's say, because I never made it all the way through, I'm just going to be a hack and say Moby Dick, because that would be one that, okay, I never finished it. It forced me to finish it. It would force me to really think about what I was reading and internalize it if it's the only book I have. And because it is nautical, it's something that wouldn't make me pine or miss civilization terribly much. Like I wouldn't want necessarily want to read Snow Crash or something that is completely futuristic and outside of my world. I'd want it to be something that wouldn't make me feel like I was missing too much. You would want something that would bum you out. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> now, if you had a choice to replace a body part with something bionic. Which part would you replace? And please keep it clean. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, like the magazines in your closet. Right. 
Um, I'm going to have to say it would be bionic eye because that's the one that makes the most sense. It's been said before, you can't really have a hydraulic bionic arm because as soon as you try to lift the car, it would just rip the arm out of your socket because the rest of you is not bionic. <laughs> um, so I'd go with an eye because I'd need that. That's a more passive kind of use um, to be able to see incredibly far away or magnify. And plus a bionic eye would certainly be handy for my aging eyeballs because I'm going to be drawing comics for quite some time, and I still want to be able to do that. And that's one of the most important things. That was exactly my thought. I would go with the eye, because I can ditch at least one contact and be able to see better. <laughs> yes. Yes. Now, when you're resting and relaxing, your beverage of choice, what is that? That would be, if I'm truly resting and relaxing, would be uh, gin and tonic, or gin and orange juice. But I'd go gin and tonic first. Otherwise... I, I only drink either coffee or water. I don't drink soda unless it comes with something in a fast food meal or something. And is your coffee just black? No, it's going to have uh, three of the blue packeted artificial sweeteners <laughs> okay. and a splash of half and half, kind of a medium tan color. Okay. You, you go to get uh, sweeteners now, it's like, you got the blue pack, you got the yellow pack, you got the green pack, you got the pink pack. I mean, it's yes. insane now. <laughs> it, it, yeah, blue. Okay. It is, we're, we're, we're a blue pack household here. Okay. Now, what technology that we no longer use do you miss the most from the 70s? I was going to say overall landline telephones, except now I really hate answering the phone. I hate hearing the phone ring. I can't stand it. But I mean, I certainly had uh, an appreciation looking back for a landline telephone, especially how many different ways it can be used as a weapon. Remember those big old clunky phones, like not the wall-mounted ones, but with the rotary phone, you yep. can clonk someone on the head with it. You can shove the handset in their mouth like at the end of Midnight <laughs> Cowboy. You can strangle someone with the cord. I mean, it was a piece of equipment. We still use phone technology, so I don't know if that's a fair answer. I don't even associate technology in the 70s as even being technology. I mean, obviously, there's technology. Did I miss the most? Okay, here's what it is, Christopher. The cable TV box where it's actually a physical box with buttons that you press down for the channel. I remember that, yes. My grandfather would just sit there and go, bink, 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 bink. Yes. Here's why I would like to have those now and why I miss them. Because when you change the channel, the channel instantly changed. With satellite TV, when you change a channel, and this sounds like a first world problem, but it takes a couple seconds for that channel to change. For that image to come up on the screen, takes a couple seconds. And we're just used to it now, but that cable box, hit that clunky button, it changed it immediately, and you could flip back and forth instantly if you had your fingers on, you know, two different buttons. Click, 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 click. <laughs> uh, yeah, I remember like the faux wood finish box with the yes, little yes. wire coming out to the back of your TV. You drag it over to the couch, sit there yes. with it. Yeah. <laughs> That photo was like a sticker on there that looked like wood paneling. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yep. It's true. When we go to watch TV, it's like, okay, let me turn on the stereo, TV, get the remote. It's like, remember when you could just turn on the TV? Wasn't that great? Yeah. <laughs> now it's an ordeal. And even when you had a remote, you just had the one remote? I have four. Yeah. I can't. Anytime I go to anybody else's house, inevitably, if it's up to me to change the channel on TV, I will use the wrong remote. I will hit the button and all of a sudden everything will go to static. And I'll have to ask my mom or whoever, oh, you, how do I get this back to Mysteries at the Museum or whatever we're watching? And there might be a couple of options like, well, you can get this universal remote, which is gigantic, and then you got to program the whole thing. And then no one else in the house knows how to use the TV because of that. Or you can like buy components of all the same brand that 
talk to each other and work together. But then, of course, you're out thousands of dollars. And I don't like putting all my eggs in one basket like that either. People tease me because I don't use my phone to change a channel on the TV or I don't have certain apps on my phone or I don't use my phone as my podcast player. It's because now I need my phone to be my phone. I don't want I don't want to risk that the battery is draining because it's downloading something that I may or may not listen to. And then I won't be able to actually use the phone to make a phone call if I need to. I just that's I I want my phone to be my phone, my iPod to be my iPod, et cetera, et cetera. They are pretty awesome with all the apps on them and all the things you can do. But man, when it doesn't work, I lose it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I still have a little uh, physical phone book that I put everyone's name and email and phone numbers down in. Just cause. Now, my final question. What was the best film of the 1970s ever made and why? Oh, my gosh. You could say, like, okay, best sci-fi, best crime, but to pick one, that's hard. It is. And to me, the 70s were the golden era of movies because that was a time when they didn't pull their punches on dramatic endings. If they wanted to end a movie on a downbeat, they would do that. I have to say, I mean, The Godfather is the obvious answer. It wouldn't necessarily be my personal favorite, even though I do love that movie. I'm going to say with Network, because at this moment, it is so pertinent to what is happening now and what has been happening since the 70s. I had written down Godfather and Star Wars. And again, two totally different things, but I think that's a a really uh, good observation that it's still relevant. I mean, Star Wars is my favorite. You know, I have to say that. It's the perfect film. The first one's perfect. It's one and done. It's a fairy tale. It's all there. Exactly. It's been a pleasure talking to you and about Six Million Dollar Man and your work. And I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to Impossible Jones and this uh, Aztec Empire. Sounds great. I want to check that out. Thank you. Because that's something I really enjoy. Something that detail that is historically accurate. And that's a lot of work. It's well worth checking out. Everybody else should check it out too. Well, I appreciate that. Oh, let me just say one last thing. Steve Rude. That's another guy who's art. I looked at a lot. He said, throw it out there. So Steve Rude. Steve was one of my first guests on the show. Oh, excellent. Yeah, I think I saw that when I was researching your podcast here. He was fun. Can I tell a quick uh, fun story? At our studio in Portland, one day we're interviewing uh, a young man who was going to be our intern. And he came in and he brought his portfolio. And that day in particular, Steve Rude was in town. He just happened to be in town. He's visiting people, popped by the studio to hang out for a little bit. You know, some of us, you know, knew him. I had not met him before, you know, outside of shaking hands at a convention or something. So here we are. We have this intern. This kid comes in and he's already kind of nervous. He's coming to the studio to interview, be an intern. And then Steve Rude pops in and he's just sitting there on the couch. And Steve Rude offers, he says, Hey, can I look at your portfolio? He says, You want me to check it out? And the kid does like, I couldn't believe it. And so Steve Rude sat there and gave him this nice, lengthy portfolio review. You know, then Steve left and he had, he had other people he was going to go see. So he took off. <laughs> and we remember we said to the intern, yeah, I bet you didn't think you'd see Steve Rude here giving you a portfolio review, did you? Yeah. It just, it made us feel like such big shots. <laughs> that <laughs> One day this kid, like we got to impress this intern, you know, we were punching goofballs, but that Steve Rude was there. So that's, that's my little Steve Rude story was the day he gave our intern, our potential intern, a portfolio review on the fly. That's a great story. Thanks a lot for sharing that. You bet, Christopher. David, thank you so much for being on Creator Talks. Thank you. I appreciate you reaching out. And hopefully in upcoming interviews, I can have both David and Carl Kiesel back on to talk about their Kickstarter coming up in the spring. 
As I said in the introduction, this is a show where I interview writers and artists working in comic books and other mediums. Well, my guest next week is Rachel Kilberry. She was on my show in the early days as Rachel Persephone, and she'll be joining me as a guest for a full interview. I interviewed her at the New Jersey Comic Expo a few years back. We've met up at cons over the years, and finally, she has a chance to be on the show, so we can talk about at greater length her decision to become an illustrator in some of her work, including cover illustrations for books, her contribution to the anthology It Was Metal that I discussed on a previous episode with Joss Schwartz and Chris Heron of A Sound of Thunder, and how an idea that she had and her love for Florence and the Machine led to a Kickstarter for Cosmic Love Anthology. The stories contained therein are inspired by the music of Florence and the Machine, and if fully funded by March 1st, will be available through Red Stilo. So if you are interested in that Kickstarter, there will only be about a day left to participate if you are listening to this interview the day it comes out. So if you have a chance, please check out Cosmic Love now on Kickstarter today. And please join me next week for my interview with Rachel Kilberry. And I'll be here every Thursday with a new interview. In the meantime, you can follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Creator Talks Pod. That's at Creator Talks Pod. Please follow for all the latest updates and Saturday Silver Age and Sunday Bronze Age comics that I post from my collection. Please share your comics and reach me through social media at Creator Talks Pod. And you can reach me directly through email, contact at creatortalks.com. That's contact at creatortalks.com. And if you have a moment, please leave a star rating or review on iTunes. It goes a long way to helping the show be found amongst all the other podcasts. And if you have another podcast that you appreciate and enjoy, please leave a rating for them as well. This show is available on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, YouTube, and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. Thank you for joining me this week. I hope you enjoyed the interview, and there'll be more coming your way that are already recorded in the weeks ahead for your listening pleasure. Once again, I want to thank my sponsor, The Comic Book Shop, where I get my comics. I hope you enjoy yours this week. I know I enjoyed mine. That's it for this week. Until next time. <laughs>